37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. up everybody happy new year and good tidings of comfort and joy this is episode 222 of pixelated paranormal and we know we promised you cave monsters we'll get that the first episode of january but i totally forgot we always do like a news dump right at the end of every year so this is going to be our 2021 news you may have missed episode or, you know, the not-so-best of 2021, or maybe the best of 2021. You <laughs> right. never know what you're going to get. They don't know. Yeah. yeah they, they may not have heard these stories yet. Now, you heard that delicious, sultry, baritone voice of Preston. Preston, how are you, buddy? Well, you know, I'm, I'm actually uh, doing pretty good. I'm starting to um, recover uh, my my sleeping habits, so, like... You know, I'm actually getting uh, seven hours of sleep, six hours of sleep now uh, versus like my my three hours or two hours that I've been getting for like the last month. And uh, I don't know, like um, lately my dreams have been pretty mild. Like they're just like, you know, like stupid bullshit dreams that don't make any sense. And you wake up and you're just like, meh, Um, and you just go about your day. But last night, man. I had like this uh, dream that uh, was fucked up. Like I'm still <laughs> racking my brain over it today. Like I on my lunch got on Google and was like trying to research information because it was like it, it stuck out so much and uh, <laughs> it, it was it was just odd because in this dream um, I I roll up to this like kind of like base inside of a mountain and it's like owned by the cia and like it said like you know like on the plaque on the front like cia ufology center and it's kind of like um uh almost like a scientology building where like it's like stacked (laughs) with shit on the inside but nobody's there and you're just like wait a minute am i supposed to be here and then, um, <laughs> like, A.D. Skinner from the X-Files shows up and, like, hands me a pistol. And I was like, dude, you're going to need what? this. Yeah, trust me. <laughs> they're they're on to you. And so there's, like, this elevator, and it, like, opens up. I'm like, oh, shit. And, like, I, you know, I, I go down, and I'm, like, in this weird cave system. And, like, this, like, Nordic blonde girl shows up, and it's like, tell me about, like, the history of, like, the universe. And there's this underground, there's this underground society. And as I'm like walking around, I'm like, holy shit, these guys are Masons. And they, they like, wouldn't, they wouldn't (laughs) talk to me. I'm like, what's up, brother? And they're like, you're not a brother. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Fucking nerd. I'm like, I'm a brother. And they're like, you're not a real brother. And then I noticed like they all had like this weird, like ceremonial, like blue face paint on. And um, they just kept blowing me off. And then, like, the the cave starts to explode in. I'm like, oh, shit, we, we got to get out of here. And so we make our way up this, you know, rock tunnel. And then we get out. And then, like, there's a city there. And, like, I don't know, these 
Masons that don't think that I'm a Mason are all like in this weird ceremony chant thing and they're hooting and hollering. <laughs> and so finally I like get one to kind of talk to me and he's like, you're not a real Mason. And I'm like, no, I am. And then I'm like, wait a minute. Are you trying to tell me that the guy that started Freemasonry, like basically you guys kicked him out and he was like an outcast. And so like, I'm like, a, you know. I'm not really practicing the masonry that you're practicing, and you guys are like this secret society. And he's like, follow me. Ooh, you're like a dirty mason. Yeah, I'm like, I'm not even a real mason. I'm just like a, you know, like a cheap dollar store version of masonry because this is the real deal. Like, this is like the Illuminati. And so this guy who <laughs> didn't have a blue face basically painted up his body to have a blue face. And then, like... Was that Gargamel, the one that didn't have the blue face? Maybe. And... uh so he uh, so he starts to do this ceremony and puts me in, in like a trance and basically I'm in like a, like an out of body experience and like I'm in the world of dreams and he's like trying to like drown me in the river and like I'm choking and I'm like oh my god and so finally like I snap out of it and I take a pipe and I bash him in the side of the fucking head and uh, his last dying words were you must find out where it all started so I'm just like ah and then I woke up and I was just like. All right, so um, maybe I need to find out who started Freemasonry um, back in the 1700s. <laughs> I don't know. It's weird. 2021's oh, coming to man. an end. I'm, I'm not, like, on any sleeping medication, so I can't attribute this to, like, drugs or, you know, lack of sleep because I'm actually getting more sleep. Um, so I don't know, yeah. man. I just want to know if all the Masons are Smurfs or just a handful of them. I, maybe just a ha- maybe the real like the real Illuminati <laughs> are like Smurfs in disguise. Ooh. Like I'm talking like see folks, all these mysteries and more will be unlocked in 2022. Yeah, it like uh, Ronan off of Gardens of the Galaxy. That's the type of like uh-huh. that's the type of blue face they were. Well, keep a dream journal, dude, because I want to know more about it. Yeah. Other than that, you know, the kids had a good Christmas. Um, yeah, I got a Krampus T-shirt and some uh, yeah, cryptid dude. figurines for the office. So, I mean, I looked, I did pretty good. Yeah, man. Yeah. Um, Shayla's sister and brother-in-law got me this really terrific book called You've Got Red on You, How Shaun of the Dead Was Brought to Life. And it's a full, like, compendium about the entire uh, making of Shaun of the Dead, which is one of my top favorite horror movies of all time. Maybe it's definitely in the top five. Yeah, well, buddy. That's for damn sure. Hell yeah. Well, unfortunately, Steven's not going to be joining us for this final episode of 2021. He is still on a bit of a hiatus recovering. His, his work schedule and demand is insane right now, and so he's taking the day off just to relax and get his bearings. So, Steve-O, we wish you well, buddy. We miss you, and we know for sure one day you will be back. Yeah. So, fuck you. See you in 2022. Well, to kick things off, folks, in an episode all about the news, we'd like to share with you something special. See, we've been asking for honest comments and reviews about the podcast. We've been very fortunate so far to receive... Almost all five-star reviews on the old iTunes. So far, we're a 5.0 on the Spotify app as well. But we asked you folks to be honest, and if you had something nasty to say, then just say it so we know how we can improve. Well, folks, we're here to share with you the first negative comment about our beloved pixelated paranormal. From YouTube, 
on episode 68. I know, I'm going to keep the guy's name out of here because we don't want anybody going after this guy. We don't want anybody, you know, sharpening their pikes and pitchforks. There's a shortage on torches already, guys. But this listener or former listener <laughs> three months ago had this to say. 40 minutes in and still not talking about the promised topic. Newsflash, your announcements might be fun, in air quotes, for you. But we don't give a rat's ass. Goodbye. I won't be back. Well, sir, to you, we raise our glass. You'll be back in 2022, buddy. <laughs> hey, maybe. If that's what you want to say, great. Yeah. I was going to say so long and Godspeed. But. Yeah. Um, now, that episode, to be fair, was episode 68, Cryptid Encounters Part 3, Goatmen, Dogmen, and Frogmen. The description of the episode is thus. This episode is bursting at the seams with goodness. We spend the beginning of the episode discussing some fun announcements, including an all-too-lengthy chat about our chili recipes, and perhaps the most important Bigfoot question of all. Then it's on to Preston's pick for our third Cryptid Encounter episode, which includes the terrifying tales of Goatmen, Dogmen, and Frogmen. Hope y'all kept your lunchboxes from the last time, because you're gonna need to pack them up again. Now, I do believe we did spend about 40 minutes chatting about chili and maybe the, um, oh gosh, it's probably the uh, the Chili Fest downtown in Wichita. And here's the thing. The guy might not be wrong. He might not be right. But in Wichita, Kansas, God damn it, we love this city. Hmm? There's lots of great things going on. There's always some fun stuff. we got a lot of local listeners. And honestly, of the events we've gone to, we get a lot of love from this beautiful, wonderful city of ICT. So, going forward into 2022, God love us. We're going to share some announcements every once in a while if we think they're poignant, pertinent, or just fucking awesome. And, as a bonus, I've been working on a brand new chili recipe. So, hold on tight, because I'll share that at some point, too. Yeah. And, you know, the, the banter, you know, okay, so maybe we drug it out a little bit for 40 minutes, but... I always feel like <laughs> you know we're 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 two friends, sometimes three friends, right? And yeah. this is how like you know when we're on like game you know Xbox game chat, we're on a phone call, we're hanging out. Like these are the conversations that we have, and I think it helps us connect with the listeners. Like you feel like you're a part of the gang. Like you guys get an insight yeah. on our lives with the crazy shit that you know that I'm having dreams of, and you know the fact that my brother shit on a cat one time. <laughs> Like it just yeah. it just helps us connect and it feels more organic. Like I hate when I listen to a podcast and they're just like today's topic and then they just go right into it. Like I don't know. Like yeah. I want to hear some funny shit going on in your life and then boom. Um, if you don't want to hear the banter, fucking fast forward. It, you just you hit the scroll button. <laughs> oh, uh, oops, I gone a little too far. Let me go back a little bit. Tip tip tap tap and there you go. Yeah, there you are. Now, I have seen some podcasts who put a little show note at the end of all their descriptions that have a timestamp for every single topic. So, I don't know. Who knows? Maybe we can put a timestamp that says, shit gets started around 10 minutes and 48 seconds. Yeah. Or, as Preston says, you can just, you know, tap, 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 rewind, fast forward, and figure it out. 
But anyway, in all honesty and sincerity, we do appreciate the comment and the feedback, and we hope you had a wonderful holiday season, and we hope 2022 brings you lots of joy and you find your way back into our bosoms. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe uh, go back and listen to that episode and try the fucking chili recipe, and then you'll be like, oh my god, these guys are geniuses. Oh, I love pixelated paranormal. <laughs> but that could have been the chili recipe I talked about where I put uh, smoked sardines in my chili along with uh, dark chocolate and peach preserves. So yeah, I mean. I will admit, I'm not going to make that with the old uh, anchovies again, or sardines. Oh. Let's not lose anybody else to our constant droning. Because it's that time of year where we bring the old paranormal Cadillac back home for the last few days of the year and share with y'all the last few bizarre news stories that grace the headlines that you may have missed. Stories that, uh, you know, we happen across, that have gone across the globe in all different countries, all across the world. Some that'll make you say, holy shits, what the fucks, and maybe even make you giggle a little bit. And so... We're going to start things off here, folks, with a bang. Or maybe just a toot. A reality TV star has been raking in the cash with her bizarre side hustle. And it's not an OnlyFans, it's not a fansly, folks, and it's definitely not for the faint-hearted. Stephanie Motto, who's built an impressive following on social media after she appeared on an episode of 90 Day Fiancé, has a brand new fiscal hobby. Now that she's gained popularity, she's got a much bigger audience at her fingertips, and she's discovered a great way to cash it in. Yes, folks, if you guessed that Stephanie Motto is now farting in jars and selling them to people who follow her on the social medias... You guessed that right. She bottles up her farts in a glass mason jar, seals the top shut, and then mails the packages out to many of her different followers for upwards of almost $900 a pop. She said to prepare for the avenue, she's eaten a steady diet now each morning of beans, protein muffins, hard-boiled eggs, and protein shakes, and for safe measures, even some yogurt. All of those ingredients apparently are the perfect to combine in her gut to make her produce some of the top quality flashulence that she promises you if you were to buy one of her pungent little jars. But also, because she's dainty and it just looks cool, she's begun adding great little additions to the jars. A single solitary rose petal. She says, I like to add the little flower petals. I feel like they attach the scent and make it last a little longer. And when I'm finally finished with my jar, I like to leave a personal note. She just revealed recently that in a TikTok video, she made nearly 45,000 US dollars in just a single week. Working on my own adult-friendly platform these past few months has made me very aware of the different types of niches and markets that are out there. Over the years, I've gotten several messages from men and women wanting to buy my worn underwear my hair, my bath water, and etc. So I thought, you know what? Farts are super niche. But also something fun, quirky, and a little different. It's almost like a new novelty item. Stephanie said she got bombarded with requests nearly every day since, and now she's just trying to keep up with the demand. Be careful, lady, because you can blow an O-ring. 
most people who just fart multiple times a day don't want anybody else to know that they're blowing a little wind and certainly never imagined they can get paid for it. But Stephanie Motto has found a way to cash in on that cow. Sorry, Jerry, we can't go to dinner tonight. I gotta work late. I gotta fart in 40 mason jars. <laughs> uh, maybe tomorrow, sugar. We'll go get some spicy Thai food. That's really helped the revenue. Oh, oh man. Wow. Do you imagine that she sits on one of those little fluffy donuts when she drives some days? When she picks up her boyfriend, she says, Sorry, Jerry, tough day at the office. I mean, or the orifice. Maybe uh, maybe we're missing out and uh, we should start selling on the website ghost farts and I'll just fucking fart into a mason jar and, you know, draw a little ghost on it. And, and if we do a Patreon, they can buy videos of that. Oh, yeah. Oh, guys, that's a little ripe. Hold on. I got to put the cap on it real quick. Got to put the cap on it. <laughs> we can call them pixelated poots. Oh, there you go. Oh, man. Now, the sound of farts might be funny, guys, because let's admit it, there's never a time when a fart's not funny. But the noise from this next lady and what she heard is nothing short of terrifying. Canadian woman Ruth Hamilton of Golden, British Columbia, was awoken in bed by her dog barking just moments before a meteorite crashed, crashed through the roof of her home on October 3rd. The next thing was just a huge explosion and debris all over my face, said Hamilton. I jumped out of the bed, turned the lights on. I didn't know what else to do, so I called 911. Talking to the operator, she was asking me all sorts of questions, and at that point, I rolled back one of the two pillows I'd been sleeping on, and in between them was a meteorite. The melon-sized chunk of charcoal gray rock had punched a hole through her roof and then her ceiling landing on her bed only inches away from where her head rested just moments before the collision. I was shaken like a leaf. You're sound asleep, safe, you think, in your bed, and you can get taken out by a meteorite, apparently. Now, luckily, besides being a bit shaken up, she wasn't actually injured. Hamilton and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police officer dispatched to the investigation site speculated that maybe it wasn't actually a meteorite, but instead just debris from a nearby construction site. However, the hypothesis was quickly dismissed after doing some brief investigation when the officer called up there, noted that the company had not done any blasting or any explosions to send any debris anywhere near Hamilton's house. So then we knew it. This was a genuine meteorite that crashed through my roof. Now, Peter Brown, a professor with the Physics and Astronomy Department at Western University in London, Ontario, did an examination and confirmed the rock indeed was from outer space. He says it certainly is a meteorite. Everything about the story is consistent with meteorite fall, and the fact that this bright fireball had occurred basically right at the same time made it pretty overwhelmingly true to be a real case. Hamilton said she plans to send the meteorite to Brown and his team for further study, but will keep the rock once they've concluded their final work. Despite this seemingly anomalous nature, Hamilton's experience isn't quite as unique as one might think, because a little over a year ago, in August of 2020, Joshua Hatongalung, a coffin maker living in the Indonesian island of Sumatra, had a meteorite puncture the metal roof of his home in a similar fashion. Now, so far, only one person has been noted to be actually struck directly by a meteorite, 
a woman by the name of Ann Hodges in Alabama in 1954. She was awoken by a nap by a meteorite smashing through her roof and hitting her in the hip after first striking a radio. Hodges herself was not seriously injured during the event. So holy fuck, literally, you can go take a nap and just get hit by a fucking shooting star? Well, yeah, man. Happens all the time. <laughs> I mean, it's happened at least three times, right? Yeah. Fuck. <sighs> well, speaking of earth shaking and ground quaking, Preston, how about we shift gears into a scandal? Hmm, maybe something a little sultry, a little naughty, something that rocked the world, a professional beauty pageants across the world? <laughs> Lay it on me. In Dubai, United Arab Emirates. Emirates? Sure. Emirates? God, I promised myself I'd learn how to pronounce that between the next time I had to pronounce it. Is it Saudi authorities Amorites? have conducted the... Emirates? Is that what it is? I think so. Uh, we're probably both wrong. Saudi authorities have conducted their biggest ever crackdown on camel beauty contestants that received Bochah... <laughs> Botox injections, and other artificial touch-ups, reports the Saudi press agency on Wednesday, with over 40 camels being disqualified from the annual pageant. And Saudi Arabia's popular King Abdulazi Camel Festival, which kicked off earlier this month, they invite several breeders of all the most beautiful camels in the world to compete for some $60 million in prize money. But here's the snag, guys. We want these beautiful camels to be a la naturel. So Botox injections, facelifts, and other cosmetic alterations to make camels look more attractive are strictly prohibited. Jurors will decide the winner based on the shape of the camels' heads, their necks, their humps, the dress, and also their postures. Judges at the month-long festival in the desert northeast of Saudi capital Riyadh again, mispronounced horribly wrong, are escalating their clamp down on artificially enhancing camels. This year, authorities discovered dozens of breeders had stretched the lips and noses of their camels, used hormones to boost the beast's muscles, injected the camels' heads and lips with Botox to make them look bigger, inflated body parts with rubber bands, and used fillers to relax their faces. The club is keen to halt all acts of tampering and deception in the beautification of camels, says the SPA, adding that organizers would impose strict penalties on manipulators. The Camel Beauty Contest is at the heart of the massive carnival, which also features camel races, camel sales, and other festivities typically showcasing thousands of dromedaries. The extravaganza seeks to preserve the camel's role in the kingdom's Boudouin tradition and heritage. The extravaganza seeks to preserve the camel's role in the kingdom's tradition and heritage, even as the oil-rich country plows ahead with modernizing through mega-projects. Camel breeding is a multi-million dollar industry, and similar events take place across the region. Holy crap. I mean... Well, from Saudi Arabia, what? I mean, we can't say anything because we have, like, similar competitions for chickens, ducks, geese, and cows. Like... But, Preston, are you sitting there injecting your duck's bill with Botox? Fuck no. 
Are you going to give him little ducky booby implants? No, I don't care that much. Okay, there you go. I like it. You're keeping it honest, and that's what I appreciate yeah. about you. And I'd also like to point out, why the fuck do you keep asking me if you're pronouncing a word right? We both know my track record <laughs> of pronouncing anything fucking sucks, dude. Because if I keep throwing rocks long enough, I'm going to hit a word that you know how to pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have the power of the sun in the palm of our hands. I could just Google this shit before we record. Well, there, you, there you go, Doc Ock. That would... <laughs> solid. Um... That would take away half the charm and the reason why listeners keep coming back. Yeah. Well, for Saudi Arabia, let's travel down to Australia, shall we? The land down under. On December 14th. <laughs> On December 14th, three men from the remote Queensland, Australia, have claimed they came across to Yowie while driving home earlier in the month. The men reported... Sorry. It was reported that three plantation workers were driving on Saturday, December 4th, to the Hima base in Australia when they spotted a bizarre creature. They said they spotted this thing slouched over. It was a humanoid figure, and when the figure noticed them, it turned in their direction. A street light illuminated the beast, and Seamus Fitzgerald told the Courier-Mail they described the mysterious figure as having very long arms and an ape-like face. He said, we initially thought it was a boar or a really big animal until we got closer and saw it run off in a very ape-like way. I've never really had a paranormal or strange experience like that before. I hardly slept that night, and the feeling was overwhelming that I had just seen something that I never believed in previously. His workmate Sterling Slowcock Bennett said the group was immediately confused when it crossed paths with the unknown entity. He said, we were in utter disbelief of what we were seeing. It definitely was a scary moment for me. As I said, I was so confused and shook of what we just saw. And I got closer and closer to it. And it just didn't make the kind of sense that you would hope. Now, they're not the only people that actually saw the beast. Because locals from the tiny island town of Hima, or Yima, or Jimna, fuck me. Locals from the tiny town of Yimna with a population of just 91 people, have reportedly claimed to have seen evidence of this supposed yowie before. Mr. Slowcock Bennett said, <laughs> we went on a few hikes after... <laughs> I was waiting. Surprised uh. you didn't giggle earlier. <laughs> Mr. Slowcock Bennett said, we went on a few hikes after that to see it, but sadly, they weren't organized very well, and too many people came along and were far too loud. However, after speaking to locals, it seems that yowies are pushed out during storms. In 2019, an expert tracker claimed the legendary beast, who is believed to be an eight-foot-tall, bigfoot-like creature, has been reportedly sighted in the outback. Dean Harrison, from the Australian Yowie Research, said he has first-hand experience of the beast and has received hundreds of reports of the animal from all over Australia. Dean said that generally, reports say the Yowie has orangish-brown hair, and the hair is typically around two to four inches in length. Dean said, it was like nothing I had ever seen before in my entire life. I knew I had to move, and the moment I did, this thing roared. I thought it was going to die, but then it started running ahead of me, and so I veered away from the forest tree line. The woman I was on the phone with heard the whole thing, it was life-changing, something you can't let go. 
Now, Mr. Fitzgerald of the original trio we talked about at the beginning of the story said he previously never believed in the existence of Yowies, but said the experience has prompted him to go looking for another sighting. He said, I'm very intrigued to find out what other people have seen and what they've experienced. I'm glad to hear Bigfoot fever has gripped those down under as well. Yeah. Now, admittedly, Presto, encountering a Yowie or a Bigfoot or a Chi-Chi or a Sasquatch would definitely be heart-stopping. But I think I'd rather encounter any one of those than the pack of creatures in this next story. Now, folks, here's a fair warning. This story is not necessarily for the faint at heart. A troop of monkeys in an Indian town have recently killed up to 250 wild dogs, which includes the act of throwing them to their death from high buildings and treetops. Locals in Lavul, a 5,000-person town about 300 miles east of Mumbai, said the monkeys have begun to take revenge last month after a pack of wild dogs had killed an infant monkey. Since then, residents of Lavul have told the media outlets that monkeys have been snatching dogs as soon as they spot them and dragging them to the tops of trees and other tall buildings. The monkeys then throw the dogs off the heights and let them plummet to their death. Local media outlets have said that nearly every dog in the town has been killed in this bizarre primate purge. Officials from a local forest department were called to help capture the vengeful monkeys, but these things are so smart, not one single monkey could be trapped. Villagers then tried to catch the monkeys themselves, but several of the villagers have become severely injured in the process. The monkeys are now targeting small children, creating panic in Lavul. Now, according to Gizmodo, Primates are indeed capable of practicing purposeful revenge. No shit. Have you ever watched any of the Planets of the Apes? Jesus, call in... Or Congo. Yeah, call in Charleston Heston right now. Problem solved. (laughs) I love how you still call in Charleston Heston. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, God love you. In studies of primates in captivity and social groups in zoos, we've seen that when an individual is attacked in some way, the likelihood of them attacking someone related to their aggressor is even higher. Typically, there is a preference for attacking a third party associated with the original aggressor as opposed to the actual aggressor. Wow, these little dudes are cold, cute, and calculated. Fuck the original dog that, like, ate their mom. They're just going to kill every other dog, so then that's, like, the last dog on Earth. And they're like, what now, buddy? Oh, Jesus. That's, I mean, I I don't want any animal to be hurt, but I really hope it's indeed like wild dogs and not like snatching poodles out of backyards and shit. Yeah. Uh, Well, buddy, we're all about transitions and segues here, so how about a smooth transition from animals to tech news, huh? Okay. (laughs) Perfect. Love robots, fucking robots. Rob's robots. What are we doing? How about video game playing rats? Last year, former Feinstein Institute's neuroengineer Victor Toth set a simple goal. He wanted to teach rats how to play the classic 1994 video game Doom 2. That's right. You heard me correct, Rob. 
This guy taught rats how to play Doom 2. Were they knee-deep and dead? (laughs) I'm not sure, but it wasn't just a weird hobby. No, Toth wasn't trying to start a Twitch channel either. But the Hungarian software engineer and neuroscientist wanted to learn more about brain-computer interfaces while showcasing the potential insights that researchers could gain researchers could gain through similar experiences. His rat training setup was equal parts bootstrap and scrappy. He said the experiment consisted of a large polystyrene ball that could be rolled in any direction via ball bearings. A rat was then safely and humanely suspended in a harness on top where it could move the ball with its feet, which sensors then translated into movement in the game world and mirrored it to a curved computer monitor in front of the gaming rodent. So as the rat moved about the ball, it would also move the video game's famous corridors. Toth enforced Toth reinforced the rat's movements with little tubes that gave him sugary water as a treat whenever he did the, quote, right thing, such as walk down a corridor. All told, Toth's experiment setup cost less than $2,000. It's a bold, ambitious, and downright silly science project, so naturally, Futurism.com had to learn more about it. So they tracked down Toth and asked him about what it was like to train rats to become gamers and whether or not he ever plans to start an actual Twitch channel. Well, have you ever seen the movie Willard? That's what he was fucking doing. He's going to (laughs) take over with these fucking smart science video game playing rats. That's funny. I have not seen Willard, but I did just buy a original paperback copy of the novelization of Willard. (laughs) Ah... Futurism asks, where did the idea to do something like train rats to play video games even came from? Well, his answer's pretty in-depth. He said, the idea just came out of basically nowhere. I just thought, why not? I think it was also around the time when Neuralink put brain implants in pigs to analyze snout detection. So the idea kind of came from that, and I thought that something like that could be used in some cases. It's very relevant to brain-computer interfaces, BCI, a space I'm trying to get into in the long run. There are a couple of players in the space like Neuralink, BlackRock, and Pandoramics that are testing their devices on monkeys and then rolling them onto humans. Part of the reason is you can't fully train a rat to play something like Pong, right? The research design's too different, too difficult. But once you bridge that by training the rats in virtual environments, that is huge. You can record all the kinds of brain signals from the rats, like simple visual cortex information, or you can go higher and set up decision-making and planning. It's something very complicated, and it hasn't really been done. But you can do this in the same setup that I used. The only thing I changed is the software or the game the rat's playing. Other than that, I did it because it's just cool. So perhaps the question you're wondering is, why did you choose Doom 2, not Duke Nukem, Wolfenstein, or The Legend of Zelda? Mm-hmm. He said the plan was always just to train them on the first map of Doom 2. I thought specifically the first map was perfect because it has all kinds of environments. It has a very easy-to-start area with clear corridors and simple turns. It's also a bigger space, so you can really test a lot of stuff in there. Doom 2 also has a very easy-to-edit map. 
I was able to scrap the first corridor out of the map and make the doors open by touch when the rat approached it. So there's no button they need to press or behavior they should exhibit to actually open doors. I designed different iterations of the same map with the imp, a.k.a. the bad guy, at different positions. For shooting training, I randomly selected one of the maps so every time the rat started from the beginning, the imp would be at a different position. It's so the rat doesn't learn to shoot at a, at a specific point, but it's the actual imp itself that needs to be shot. Now they asked, how far were the rats able to go through the maze? He says they weren't able to complete the full maze. Romero, one of the three rats that he used, performed the best. I was actually able to start training him to do the shooting part on a separate device. The idea is that if they push their front leg up and their rear leg back, then the harness they were connected to could push a button above with a separate arm attached to it. That button could do the shooting. When Romero got to the imp, I would pull the arm up and that would initiate shooting. It's the same operant conditioning logic as running with the sugary water. But Romero was just as confused, and he just like, he was just like, what's happening? Why is this thing in front of me? What is this thing in front of me? Why am I getting rewards? At that point, he couldn't catch on to what was going on. By then, I gave myself a hard deadline for the end of July this year, and I just couldn't finish training Romero on time. Hmm. Should have used Duke Nukem because the rat would have been like, titties, spacebar. <laughs> You never know. Yeah. You never know what motivates those cute little guys. Titties. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Oh, maybe. Okay, now up next in tech news, as promised, a follow-up from a previous tech news report. The NYPD's robot dog has been hounded out of service. The police department will now return the DigiDog to robotics manufacturer Boston Dynamics after months of backlash and mockery that compared the four-legged bot to a dystopian sci-fi surveillance nightmare. John Miller, the NYPD's Deputy Commissioner for Intelligence and Counterterrorism, confirmed Wednesday the New York, the NYPD, had canceled its contract with Boston Dynamics and pushed back against criticism of the AI tool. Miller said the plan was to evaluate whether the robot could be used to survey scenes like standoffs with barricaded armed suspects, hostage situations, and chemicals or radiation incidents where a human might be at risk. It was never a piece of surveillance equipment. Some people who had an agenda tried to make it out for spying. Really? It was loud when it walked up had a camera for a head, flashing lights, and a speaker the police could use to speak if needed. It wasn't exactly going to be shadowing anybody down a street or hiding in doorways for surveillance. Those comments were very misinformed, but did damage to public trust. This is a piece of equipment we won't have when we could make police officers or victims even safer. The dog first appeared at a crime scene early this year, and the Daily Show trust Trevor Noah mocked it in February segment. Wow, robot dog, what a cool way for the police to say we have too much money and should be defunded. Yikes. It also drew comparison from city councilman Ben Kalos and others to an episode of the TV series Black Mirror featuring a killer robot dog. The sci-fi and horror anthology series explores how technology and social media in innovations can be so grievously wrong. 
Miller brushed off the Black Mirror comparison as ridiculous. When people have to borrow from fantasy to come up with their rationale, it's a reach. Cops have to deal with the real-world situations, and I need real-world tools. What do you think, Presto? Have you seen Black Mirror, first of all? Um, I've seen, like, the first, you know, season. Um, uh-huh. I didn't watch, like, season two, and I watched the... Uh, that one, whatever the movie was called, where you got to make the choices and it changed, like, the outcome. Um, Bandersnatch? Yeah, that was pretty fucking rad. But um, my question is, look, if the police have all this money to dispose of, you know, to make a robot dog, why don't you just give us RoboCop? Yeah. Because any fucking kid that grew up in the 80s would rather see RoboCop <laughs> than a fucking robot dog. <laughs> oh, fuck, yeah. I mean... I agree with this guy. You need new tech. Real-world problems require real-world solutions. RoboCop. you have to make the... Com- RoboCop. Yeah, yeah. Fuck Black Mirror. Um, the episode, by the way, is called Metalhead. It is definitely worth a watch because it does make you say, uh, this could happen. But yeah, screw that, man. If we're going to have some kind of robot running around killing folks, at least give them a human brain, right? Yeah. Fuck yeah. Or at 209. I'm not picky. No, I am. Fuck that. I don't want Ed 209. Cripes. <laughs> <laughs> We've all seen RoboCop. That thing malfunctions in the very beginning. Sounds like a lawsuit to me, Preston. Eh. Now, speaking of lawsuits, my friend, from October 8th, a California man is suing a psychic for not removing an ex-girlfriend's curse. In Los Angeles, a California resident, Mario Restrepo, is suing a Palos Verdes estate psychic for fraud, alleging that she falsely promised to remove a curse that was cast upon him by his witch ex-girlfriend. Restrepo reportedly paid the woman $5,100 to remove the curse. According to the lawsuit brought in by the Torrance Superior Court, Restrepo found the website of Sophia Adams while searching for psychics online last month. Adams has a license for psychic services and related business issued by the city of Gardenia and runs Psychic Love Specialists by Sofia out of released Palos Verdes Estates home. Adams's website lists her as a PhD life coach and offers services including chakra evaluation, love life analysis, psychom- psychometry, aura cleansing, and crystal light therapy. Now, before we go on, we are not making fun of witches or psychics at all. This is just the facts. Unless you have a YouTube channel and your name's Amanda Newell and uh, you shoot psychic (laughs) yoni balls out of your pussy, then we're going to make fun of you. Yep, and you might want to rewind that, (laughs) write that down, and go to YouTube. (laughs) Because we don't have a show long enough to discuss that. Um, also, we do have some plans to do some episodes about psychics, and um, if I can get everything to line up properly with a friend of mine from high school who does practice, um, I don't want to I don't want to put words in her mouth, but does practice some of the uh, the arts, so to speak. Now, Restrepo's suit states that seeing her identity as a PhD made the plaintiff more confident that she was speaking with a prof- that he was speaking with a professional that could help him. After contacting Adams, Restrepo and the psychic exchanged text messages prior to him meeting her for, an ass- for a session at her business. 
during which she performed a tarot card reading and told him he had mala suerte, or bad luck. The lawsuit alleges that Adams told Restrepo that the bad luck was placed on him by a witch hired by his ex-girlfriend. Okay, cool. So the ex-girlfriend was not the witch, but she hired a witch. And that unless he removed the curse, he and his family would be unhappy and in danger. This bad luck would reportedly ruin Restrepo, his children, and his marriage unless he paid Adams $5,100 to remove it. However, despite her promises, Adams did not in any way, shape, or form help Restrepo's marriage. He alleges he had suffered from sleepless nights, anxiety, and anguish as a result of the ordeal, and furthermore claims that although her husband, daughter, and landlords all knew that Adams has used her home as a business her home and business to harm others in the community, they have not done anything to stop her. As a result, Restrepo is seeking at least $25,000 in compensatory damages plus punitive damages for negligence, civil conspiracy, and both intentional and negligent infliction of emotional distress from Sophia Adams and her business, her husband, George R. Adams, her daughter, Tiffany Winston, a.k.a. Tiffany Johnson, and Tiffany Adams, and Adams' landlord's Christ and Polly, whose last name I will not even attempt. Kutrumbus? The witch allegedly responsible for the curse and Restrepo's ex-girlfriend were not named in the lawsuit. Yowzers. Now moving on to slightly related and happier legal news in our penultimate news story of the episode. This comes from oicanadian.com. The last Salem witch accused of making a pact with the devil will be exonerated after 300 years. A vast group of American politicians, historians, and students came together to definitively clear the names of the latest woman convicted of witchcraft in Salem, and they're close now to achieving their purpose. Democratic Senator Diane DiZaglio of Methuen, Massachusetts, heard the complaint and introduced legislation to clear the name of Elizabeth Johnson, who was condemned for a, quote, pact with the devil on January of 1693 at the height of the Salem witch trials, but she was never executed. And although her death sentence was eventually discarded, Elizabeth died as a doomed witch, and the ruling stands to this day. The work of the young 8th graders involved from North Andover Middle School ages 13 to 14 years old, were so meticulous that they merited the introduction of legislation to pardon the woman and the senator acknowledged. It is important that we work to correct history. It is at the time of this year to do this. We can never change what happened to the victims, but we can at least set the record straight. Desaglio sponsors Senate Bill 1016, which will include Johnson in the list of people formally exonerated 328 years after the conviction. If lawmakers pass the bill, as expected, Johnson will be the latest accused witch to be acquitted according to Witches of Massachusetts Bay, a group dedicated to the history and tradition of 17th century witch hunts. The students thoroughly investigated Elizabeth's story. They spent most of the year working to get this outfit for the legislation. And in fact, they drafted the bill, wrote letters to legislators, created presentations, and did all the research. At the age of 22, Johnson was one of dozens sentenced to death in the Salem Witch Trials of 1692, during which 19 were hung, hanged, 
and hundreds of women were charged. On August 10th, 19... Jesus, I'm going to get this wrong every time. On August 10th, 1692, a 22-year-old Elizabeth Johnson Jr. of Andover, Massachusetts, was arrested for witchcraft, told Judge Dudley Badstreet that she, too, participated in the great witch meeting in Salem Salem Village. The young woman was condemned to be dead on the gallows January 11th, 1693, but eventually received a stay of execution from Governor William Phipps. Phipps. She later died in 1747 at the ripe old age of 77, having had to spend half a century recognized by society as a witch or sorceress. And unlike dozens of suspects who were officially acquitted, including her own mother, Elizabeth's name was never cleared. It is not clear why Elizabeth was not exonerated, but neither the General Assembly nor the courts took any action on her behalf. So fuck yeah, eighth graders. This goes to show it's important to have paranormal sections in the library and not look at me funny when I sit right smack dab in the middle of it and read more scary stories to tell in the dark and Bigfoot books. Mm-hmm. Well, for our final news story of 2021... To take things home, once again, my dear Presto and dearest listeners, as we do at the end of every episode since the early years, we'd like you to all raise your glass, whether you're sipping something fun, fermented, frightening, or festive. As we say cheers to the weird shit in the world, to those of us that love to talk about it, and this next fucking guy. Now, before we get any farther, Preston, what are you drinking tonight, buddy? Anything fancy? Anything fun? Um, a dogfish sequenced ale. Mmm, that's delicious. Mm-hmm. I, in the spirit of the podcast, am drinking an abominable snowman versus unicorn hazy IPA. Ooh. It has a cute little picture of a unicorn having a snowball fight with a Yeti. And I'm drinking said beer out of my kick-ass Krampus Oktoberfest. Glass from Norton's Brewing Company. Oh. Yeah. All right, folks, raise your glass, cheers, take a big sip, and here we go. A former model has claimed that he still has an incredible six-pack despite being well into his 50s, and he puts it all down to drinking his own urine every day. Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Nope, just a guy named Troy This is not what I was expecting (laughs) That's why you read the notes And I'm glad that you don't (laughs) In a gross but apparently beneficial routine That we do not endorse, folks Let's pause it right there We do not endorse the drinking of your own urine And on behalf of Preston and Stephen Who I will boldly speak for I say, do not fucking drink your own pee Or anybody else's 55-year-old Troy Casey has been drinking his own wee and applying it to his skin for the last 17 years. He even goes as far as to doing a week-long urine fast and putting aged urine enemas in his own rectum. Troy, who is from Arizona in the United States, has modeled for Versace previously and is now a life coach and healer, crediting his daily pee-drinking practice for his ripped physique. He says, urine therapy is an ancient practice. It just doesn't get talked about a lot. Your own pee is full of amino acids, stem cells, and antibodies, he says during a recent interview. 
I drink my own urine every morning. I call it hair of the dog. And the feeling is electric. And folks, that's today's Pee Wee Herman word of the day. Electric. Just pay attention. Applying aged urine is the fountain of youth, and aged urine enemas are one of the ways I got my stomach so flat. No, sir, that's called dehydration. Although, be- <laughs> Although believe it or not, Troy apparently wasn't always so healthy. He partied hard early on in his modeling career and says he would bloat as a result, causing casting agents to tell him not to even bother turning up for shoots. It was this that set him on a course to go down the path of nutrition and natural and ancient healing methods as he became interested in urine therapy, also known as Shivambu. In how do you pronounce that word, Preston? Are you following along? A Y U R V Ayurvedic? Um, yeah, let's go with that. Ayurvedic medicine beginning back in 2004. He drank his own pee for the first time when he couldn't be bothered to stop for a toilet trip during a long car journey and claims that the feeling of tasting his own wee was electric. The first time I tried my own urine, I was driving from San Francisco to Los Angeles. It's a long five-hour drive, and I didn't want to stop to take a leak, so I peed in a cup, and I drank it, and I was like, hey, that's not so bad. Drinking my own urine, it wasn't as bad as the mental barrier in my own mind. The electricity were so immediately and subtle, I felt a cool buzz. Whoa! Intuitively, it just felt good. I drank my own urine on and off for a while from there. Is it necessary for me to drink my own urine? Probably not, but I do it anyways because it's sterile and I like the taste. Patches O'Hulahan. <laughs> I think. <laughs> there you go, right? Uh, from there on, Troy began exploring other ways to ingest his own pee, including doing week-long urine fasts, putting aged urine enemas into his rectum, and applying his own pee topically. He recalls, My friend who beat testicular cancer with... Shivambu challenged me to a seven-day urine fast where I drank and looped my own urine for a week. From there, I got into aged urine enemas where I would cultivate my own urine and ferment it in a sealed mason jar for two weeks before transferring it into my rectum. Aged urine enemas are so powerful for your health, and I got my six-pack abs after doing them. It flushed out my gut, and that's when I got really ripped. I also tried applying topical aged urine and what it did for my mood and muscle building was amazing. I put it on my skin, especially when I'm on the beach and it's so electrifying and strengthening. Troy admits it's a big psychological leap for people to use their own urine as a moisturizer, but stands by it and says he'd drink his own urine to survive the apocalypse. If the apocalypse ever happened and we don't have access to water anymore, I got my urine. I got my own water to drink. I survived on my own pee before and it works. I'm 55 years old. Look at my vitality, my skin, my body, my health. People are impressed by my physique and my energy, especially at my age. Well, it didn't work out for Kevin Costner in Waterworld, so. (laughs) And to that we say cheers.
Now, Preston, have we regaled the fine listeners of the time that I um well, we ran a race. It's about this time every year. It's called the Hangover Half. And it's a 5K race that you would do in our little town beside Wichita called El Dorado. It's a three-miler, and you run with a little plastic mug. And about every three-quarter mile, you stop and you chug eight ounces of mm, crisp, cool Bud Light mm-hmm. or root beer. Now, if you get to know the people like we do, then you shotgun a few extra beers. You get to the end, you're pretty toasted, and your wonderful, awesome wife who does not drink Bud Light is your DD. And then you get about, oh, I don't know, 30 minutes away from the race. You're almost halfway home. And then it hits you. Ooh, baby, I got to pee. So what do you do, Preston, in that situation as you're falling behind me? Um, you cock your head to the side curiously and say, what's he doing? Yeah. <laughs> Why is the car and swerving I, all over the road? Like, what's going on? Yes. What's going because on? A, um, because an inebriated Sean was trying to pee into a 12-ounce mug while his wife drove and said, what the hell are you doing? But I'm telling you what, guys, I couldn't cork it any long. I was about to spring a leak. So I peed in the mug, and then I held it, and I was like, hey, I just peed in this mug. And my wife said a couple explicatives and told me to throw it out of the car. So I chucked the mug of urine out of my car as we were going 60 miles an hour down the road. And where did that cup end up, Preston? On the front windshield of my Ford Fiesta. And, um, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, that was a that was a rough night for me because um oh boy. We uh you know, we got back to your place to uh take part of the holiday festivities and I started to get a yeah. fever and um I came down with a bout of the flu, so I was like I'm leaving your house. I had to pull over like not even a mile into some parking lot and then randomly like just unloaded my guts and almost shit myself at oh. the same time while <laughs> having Sean's piss on my front windshield. So, uh, Crappy New Year! Yeah. Oh, fuck, man. Yeah. I uh, I still feel bad about that. It was a direct hit right in the center of your windshield. Yeah, it was. Um, amazing. Yeah. Amazing stuff. Um, all jokes aside, I did have a DD that night. We do not condone irresponsible drinking and driving. With that, Preston, I think it's time, as we said before, to pull the old Cadillac into the parking lot. What do you say? Nope, because we can't go out on a PP story. So I'm going to save the day <laughs> for this time. Listeners, really raise your glasses and cheers. Because I have a news article about long-forgotten yeast strains that are being sought out from shipwrecks, abandoned breweries, and other locations in the hope that they can be put to good use if resurrected. That's right, as we head towards the end of another extraordinary year, the BBC, not the one you're thinking about, but the British one, is taking a look back (laughs) at some of their favorite stories from the best of 2021. And, as the story goes, the diver gently eased himself through the hatch into a sunken hold. He could see the shipwreck's treasure lying in wait for him. Not gold. No, no. It had been down there for more than 100 years, but now some of it was about to be freed from its resting place. The explorer in question, Steve Hickman, a dive technician and 
amateur, amateur diver carried a small netted bag with him. The treasure he was after was beer. The problem two <gasps> and solution four, all of life's problems. Preserved in the hold of this vessel were now row upon row of glass beer bottles partly buried in silt. As soon as he moved the first bottle from where it lay, sediment billowed in the huge in huge clouds with visibly reduced to nil. Hickman was effectively blinded, but he knew this wreck well as he had visited many times before. So he carried on, filling for more bottles in the gloom. Once he had gathered and bagged a few, he made his escape and his team carefully carried the bottles to the surface. The wreck of the Wallachia, a cargo ship that sank in 1895 off the Scottish coast following a collision with another vessel in heavy fog. The Wallachia had just departed from Glasgow and was packed with various kinds of cargo, including large containers of a chemical called tin chloride. But the ship also had a more precious cargo, cargo thousands of bottles of alcoholic beverages aboard. Many of them have been preserved in the cold waters where the ship lay on the silty seabed for more than a century. Since he began diving into the Wallachia in the 1980s, Hickman has retrieved dozens of bottles containing whiskey, gin, and beer. But his recent visit, a team effort with several companion divers, led to something unusual. The bottles they retrieved were handed to scientists at a research firm called Brew Lab, who, along with colleagues from oh, the yeah, University of Sunderland, were able to extract live yeast from the liquid inside three of the bottles. They then used that yeast in an attempt to recreate the original beer. In 2018, a similar project in Tasmania used yeast from a 220-year-old beer bottle found on a shipwreck uh, to approximate a beverage from the late 1700s. But the study of the Wallachia yeast revealed the surprise. Those beers can't contained an unusual type of yeast, and the team behind the work is now eva evaluating whether the long-lost strain could help applications in modern brewing or even improve beers today. We're looking at you, Bud Light. <laughs> This is just one example of a growing field of research among brewers and other fermenters of liquid who are seeking forgotten strains of yeast and hope they can put it, put it to good use. That means hunting for them in old bottles found in shipwrecks, scouring ancient pots, and collecting samples from brewing distilleries where fabled strains may yet linger. This kind of search is co called bio-prospecting and sign me the fuck up. And resurrecting historical yeast could have many applications from cleaning up pollution to assisting in the production of aromas for the perfume industry today. Hickman first began gathering bottles of beer from the Wallachia back in the 1980s, and he claims it still is just about drinkable. Thank God for science. He and his friends science. He, he and his friends brought the bottles home and poured them into glasses. The beverages, nearly a hundred years old at the time, settled slowly and developed a thick, creamy head, almost like Guinness. And this is where I produce a beer boner. But oh man, yeah. Preston's pole vaulting all across his basement right yep. now. But that's where the magic Inman ended because Hickman said it had the most atrocious smell, a sort of salty, putrefied <laughs> smell, I think would have been the best description. And it didn't taste any better, he adds. Maybe you should try home brewing and, uh, you know, uh, you know, that the miracle grow that I brewed that one time. Jesus Christ. 
but I still drank it. <laughs> but the bottles had other surprises, including a habitat <gasps> of uh, a habit of exploding, says Hickman, as they adjusted to the Ooh, lower wow. yeah, as they adjusted to the lower pressure above sea level. Gases inside the vessels expanded, occasionally shattering the glass. Once, Hickman left the bottle on the kitchen table in his parents' house. It burst while they were in the other room, spraying stinking, decaying beer everywhere, and it took a long time to clean it up and get that smell out. Nowadays, the beer has deteriorated even further, and he wouldn't attip, uh, attempt sipping it. However, some of Hickman's diving companions were able to taste a fresh batch of beer created by Brew Lab using strains of the yeast isolated from the old Wallachia bottles. Andy Pilly, a charted surveyor and fellow amateur diver who has also been on the expeditions to collect the beers from the wreck, was among those who tried the results. A 7.5% stout, dear Lord. I certainly got a coffee and chocolate hint from it. It was Piley who decided to send the Wallachia beer to Brew Lab after he heard about the company by a chance at a restaurant. Scientists at Brew Lab, a spinoff from the University of Sunderland, have studied yeast strains and brewing techniques for years. The firm's founder, Keith Thomas, thank you, you're a, you're a hero, Keith, says that once the beer from the Wallachia lab or from the Wallachia ship was in his lab, he treated it with the utmost caution. We opened it in a containment level two laboratory conditions. This involved unsealing, the, <laughs> yeah. This involved unsealing the bottles in a special cabinet filled with sterile air in order to protect scientists from any possible pathogens in the beer. This uh, measure also ensured that samples did not become contaminated with any modern day yeast strains. Genetic testing revealed that the Wallachia stout contained two different types of yeast: Barethonomalacus and Debro. My Cius. I don't know. We're gonna it. we're gonna go with it. And his paper about the work Thomas and his colleagues explained that this unusual uh, that it's unusual to find the uh, Byromyceus in uh, historic beers. Though this type of yeast turned up in a few Belgian beers made using spontaneous fermentation, which relies on uh, leaving pre-fermented liquid open to the environment. Some of the most common yeast strains used in, in brew, brewing are often from the species Saccomine. Oh, fuck, whatever. I'm no scientist. Nailed it. Yep. Generally, fermentation occurs when yeast consumes the sugars in malted grains like barley. The yeast turns these sugars into alcohols, carbon dioxide, and various byproducts. Some of those byproducts impart flavor, and so each individual yeast strain metabolizing in its own way will yield a different flavor profile in the fermented product. It also comes down to the genome of the strain in question, or strains plural, which is in the case of the Wallachia's beer. Most modern-day brewers don't uh, vary the yeast they use a great deal, though they do commonly experiment with other, other ingredients such as grain that they ferment, or hops that they add later in the process to impart flavor. A few beverage makers and scientists argue that using more diverse strains of yeast can also strongly influence the flavor and robustness of the finished product. In short, trying an unusual yeast uh, could result in better beer. So many are turning to forgotten strains from the past. Thomas is pleased with the results of the Wallachia beer study. He says the combination of the two yeasts they found in the 126-year-old beer could perhaps inspire innovations in the brewing industry today. Cheers 2021. Fuck yeah. <laughs> nice. 
I don't know. I still try the hunt. I'd still try the hundred and twenty six year old stinky beer. Why not? I give it a shot anyway. If you told me it was safe, you know. Yeah. I mean, we got vagina beer. We got beard beer. Why not old dusty, dirty pirate ship beer? Yeah. Well, again, dear listeners, as we close out this year, we really want to say thank you from the bottom of our cold, morbid hearts. Thank you. Thank you so much for supporting us, listening to us, following us, commenting, talking, reaching out, and everything else. It does really mean a lot to, you know, just the three of us guys over here just trying to make you laugh a little bit and teach you something once in a while. Uh, 222 episodes is no small feat, and we do it because not only do we love it, but we also love you guys, and we appreciate all of you, even you YouTube guy who thinks that we talk too much at the beginning of the episodes. We hope you especially have a great new year. And at least, thanks for checking us out for the uh, few episodes you did, pal. Yeah. Well, if you're on the social medias, please check us out. We got a YouTube channel, Preston. You're pretty proud of that, as I am too. Yeah. I don't know if I said it last time, but fuck, our one video has, let me pull it up. Like 1,300 uh, views. No, no. Oh, yes. Sorry, I had, had to think about that for a second. <laughs> Math is hard. Math is hard. Yeah, our time story about, uh, uh, you know, the, the little computer back in the 1800s. Ah, we're up to yeah. fifteen hundred views, buddy. Fifteen hundred views. Fuck me. What did did we did we hashtag that baby with something special? No, it's just the the vertical plane's like a well known <laughs> story that people want to know more about. Everybody just fucking loves it. Hey, that's great. Yeah, I love it that they love it. Hell yeah, dude. Yeah, tell your friends. Follow us. Subscribe. Follow us on YouTube. It'd be fantastic. If you're on the old Instagram, please check us out at. PXL Paranormal. We're at 491 followers on there. I sure would love to hit 500 before the end of the year. And also, I'd like to say this too. Thank you and um, yeah, thank you to all the other podcasts who have followed us and, and talked to us and become buddies with us. We really sure appreciate that. We hope you guys all have a great new year too. If you're on the Facebook, the Pixelated Paranormal Podcast is where you can find us on both those two, the Facebook and the Instagram. That's where we post all the companion posts that sometimes have photos that go along with the episodes. Check us out on the old Spotify. Check us out on Apple Podcasts. Check us out everywhere else you can find your fine favorite podcasts. Mm -hmm. Preston, what do you got for us? And as always, if you need a beard, if you want a beard, if you want to grow a beard without having to lather your face in your own piss, like that guy that we just talked about, then go over to Gross. Big Yeah, go over to BigDobsBeardBomb.com and instead use promo code PXLPARA for non-piss products that you can put on your face, and you'll have the most manliest, great-smelling beard that you could possibly ever have. Check out scents like Dundee Cedar Bay Rum, Fresh Citrus Classic Mint. Woo, and sweet tobacco. <laughs> Huzzah. And if you're in the Wichita area, please go check out our dear friend Leslie and the rest of the gang over at CD Trade Post at Pawnee and Seneca. Yeah, you. All right. Well, that about does it for this year. Everybody, please have a very safe and responsible, lovely New Year's Eve. And we will catch you all next year where we promise the next episode will be... 
about the creepy crawlies under the streets lurking in the darkness and how you can avoid them. Mm-hmm. On behalf of Steve, cheers to the weird shit in the world and those of us that love to talk about it. Stay spooky and stay on the Paranormal Highway. The cast that Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the Paranormal Highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.